I'm going to pray for illumination, but I also meant to pray for the RYS kids who will be leaving and the leaders too um, as they go. So I'm going to pray for that as well. But let's pray together as we open God's word. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would be with those who are traveling for RYS, that you would watch over them and keep them safe, that you would help this to be a wonderful week of fellowship and fun, but also uh, study and enrichment by your spirit and your word. And as we now approach your word and open it together, we ask that you would bless it to us, that by the Spirit, through the word preached, that you would open our eyes, that we may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to you, that we may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 8. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here to get this morning. We are, we've been considering a series through the Gospel of Mark, and we've come to chapter 8, verse 34. And so our text for this morning is going to be Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through the first verse of chapter 9. If you're using the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1074 of many of our Pew Bibles. Uh, Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. So Mark chapter 8, beginning our reading at verse 34. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come. With power. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Well, we've been considering this section of the book of Mark, and one of the, the points that we've made as we've gone through is that things have changed since Peter made that important confession that Jesus is the Christ. The direction of the gospel has taken on a whole new character. And really, from now till the end of chapter 10, Mark is going to have two main purposes in saying what he says, is helpfully summarized by William Lane, that his purpose is to explain, not Lane's, Mark's purpose, is to explain what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah and what it requires to be identified with him. That really is going to be the direction of these chapters of Mark, uh, to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah and what it requires to be identified with him. And if we think back to last week, that passage was all all about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, that he said the Son of Man would suffer many things and be rejected by the authorities and would be put to a violent death, but after three days would rise again. Uh, That was what it means for him to be the Messiah. And now Mark is going to turn to that second purpose, what it requires for identification with him. This passage is all about what it means to be a disciple of this Messiah, to follow this Christ, to be a follower of Jesus. 
And these are important things for us to consider. In fact, it's hard to think for us to think of a more important text for what it means to be one of Jesus' disciples. This is one of those sayings of Christ about following him that Christians ought to return to time and time again to reflect on the calling that is put before us by the Lord. And so what do we see in this passage? Well, we see our Lord telling us about the path to follow and then about the perspective to keep and finally about the power to come. And that's how we want to think about this passage together. The path to follow, the perspective to keep, and the power to come. Uh, Jesus' disciples must know these things. And first he gives us this path to follow. And what Jesus says here in verse 34 seems intentionally connected to the rebuke he gave to Peter and his disciples in verse 33. Uh, When Peter wanted to turn Jesus from the course he had sketched out to them about what it required for him to be the Messiah, Peter tried to turn him away from that purpose, and Jesus had said to him at that time, get behind me. Get behind me, Satan. If you're going to try to turn Christ from his purposes, you need to get behind him. But interestingly, behind me and after me are the same two words in Greek. Uh, The same two words that were get behind me in verse 33 are if you want to follow after me in verse 34. And I think what Jesus is clearly saying here is if you're going to try to frustrate my purposes, then get behind me and get out of my way. But if you want to follow me, this is what's going to be required to follow after me on the way that you must go as one of my disciples. Um, What is the path that they need to follow? And notice here that it's not just the path for the 12 disciples. This is not something he's saying uniquely to them. Intentionally, Jesus calls the crowd to him and says this before the crowd and the disciples. And this, I think, helps us from making any kind of mistake of thinking this is a unique call just to those initial 12 and not a call to all Jesus' disciples. Jesus is making it clear here. Everyone is called and everyone is told, if you want to follow after me, if any one of you wants to follow after me, this is the path that you must follow. And he sketches out two basic conditions of discipleship. Right, Two basic conditions of discipleship, probably two conditions that are well known to many of us who have spent a lot of time in church, um, but two simple conditions for discipleship that Jesus lays out here. The first one is self-denial. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to follow after him, you have to deny yourself. That's what he says in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself. That's the first condition for following Jesus. Denial here is a very strong thing. Uh, It means to refuse to pay attention to what one's own desires are saying or to refuse to think about what one just wants for himself. To put oneself at the end of the line or even to say to one's heart, keep quiet. Another person said self-denial is the radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination. It's essentially just to say no to yourself in order that you may say yes to God. Saying no to my will in things 
in order that we may say yes to God's will in things. And why is this a following after Jesus? Well, because this is precisely what Jesus did in coming into the world. He says no to himself that he might say yes to the will of his Father. He subjects the things he might want so that he might say yes to all of the things that the Father wants him to do. And Jesus is saying if we want to follow him, if we want to be like him, we have to walk that same kind of path, that kind of single-minded devotion, not to ourselves, but to our God. This has always been a difficult calling. Um, We hear deny yourself, um, and we think, well, I can deny certain things. One commentator said, you know, some people have used this to say, that's why you give up chocolates at Lent. Um, But he said, of course, that's not the kind of self-denial Jesus is talking about here. It's a denial of the whole self, of everything that is of us, so that we might give ourselves over completely to our God. This has always been a difficult calling, but I think it's a particularly difficult calling in our current cultural moment that is always preaching self-assertion or self-realization rather than self-denial. Carl Truman has written about this. In one of his books, he quotes the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor talking about expressive individualism and the culture of authenticity that it's created in this world. And he says the culture of authenticity that exists today is where each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. And that it is important to find and live out one's own humanity as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. Maybe as I read that, you say, well, that's why I don't read philosophy. I don't really know what he's talking about or what you're talking about. Um, But what is his point there? He's saying our current cultural moment is saying to us, you really need to find your own self, and to do that, you cannot surrender to anyone else's ideas. To surrender to what society thinks, to surrender to what other people think, to surrender to what the government thinks, to surrender to what religion thinks. All of that would be actually a giving up of your authentic self. And so when Jesus comes and says you need to deny yourself, the world would come and say you have to realize yourself. Where Jesus would say you have to deny yourself, our current world is saying deny everybody and everything but yourself. It's going to be a radically different thing in this world for us to follow Jesus. But it's always been a radically different thing in the world to follow Jesus. That was James' point in James chapter 4, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Following Jesus requires a denial of ourselves to follow after him, saying no to our wills that we might say yes to the will of God. Um, That's the first basic condition of discipleship, that we must deny ourselves. The second condition that Jesus gives is that we must pick up our cross and follow him. 
Uh, we have to pick up our cross. Cross-bearing is the second condition of discipleship, self-denial and cross-bearing. Now, we often talk about cross-bearing. Um, it's become kind of Christianese, right, for just general struggles. So, well, you know, that's my cross to bear. Or, you know, poor Sally, she has a heavy cross to bear. We kind of talk that way. It's become part of our, you know, sort of just way of talking. I think even unbelievers use that expression. You know, it's a cross that you have to bear. Um, but that's not really how Jesus is using it here. And to, to, to reduce it to that is really to diminish the shock of what Jesus would have said. How shocking this would have been for them to hear it. Because probably most people in this crowd had seen someone at some point carrying a cross. And when you saw someone carrying a cross, you knew what they were carrying it to do. They were carrying it to the place of execution where they would be stripped and nailed to it and hung up to suffocate to death over hours or maybe days. It was a cruel and shameful death. It'd be like saying to someone, pick up your hangman's noose and follow him to the gallows. Or pick up your electric chair and follow him to the death chamber. If we just reduce it to, this is just the struggles we face in life, we really diminish the, the impact that Jesus is making here. Um, he's describing a death march with all of its shameful publicity. As awful as it was to be crucified, part of the, the process of being crucified was to be publicly humiliated in the process. Uh, there's something humiliating about having to carry your own cross that's going to be the, the instrument of your death, to be stripped naked and hung up on the cross for all to see. It was part of a shameful death. So it's not just the horror of death that Jesus is talking about, but with all of its shameful publicity, uh, to be put to open shame by this way of dying. He's saying you have to be willing to give up your very life in this way to follow him. And of course, as we think about cross-bearing, probably as Mark's original audience would have heard these words as well, we cannot but think of our Lord and the shameful death that he suffered on the cross. How he had to carry his cross, and how he was stripped and died there for our sins. And if this is the path to follow, um, how is this going to sell itself to anyone? Who's going to want to sign up for this? Right? I, I think we... You know, part of the problem with, with verses that are really familiar to us is that they're so familiar that we really can't hear them. You know, you, you hear, you have to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow him, and you say, we know. We've heard it a million times. But part of the problem for us is we've, these things we've heard so often, it can fail to make this impact. That Jesus calls this whole crowd and says, this is, if you want to follow me, this is how you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. It's a, call to, it's a call to follow and die. And That's why I think why Jesus says immediately what he says after saying this. Because if this were all he said, we might think, who would ever sign on for this? 
And it would be impossible to sign on for this if you did not embrace the perspective that Jesus tells you you need to embrace in the following verses. He doesn't just give us a path to follow. He gives us a perspective to embrace. We could really break this down into three kinds of perspectives on what's required in the world. Because Jesus is saying you couldn't possibly follow this course if you didn't understand something about what life and death really is and what gain and loss really is and what shame and honor really are. If you can't understand those things, you would never be able to follow. And that's why Jesus says if we are going to follow, we have to have a perspective that we embrace. We have to have a real perspective on true life, on true value, and on true honor. Without these perspectives in mind, we couldn't hope to follow that path at all. There would be nothing to motivate us to follow that path. And that's why Jesus says we have to embrace a right perspective on true life. Because Jesus is teaching something here about the difference between this earthly life and eternal life. Because someone could easily say, I don't want to follow Jesus to self-denial and death. It sounds better to me to live as my authentic self, to do what I want to do, and then just to live my life on my terms. There's a certain draw to that, isn't there? That's one of the reasons this world has come to this cultural moment. There's a certain attraction in people saying, I live my own way. I don't let other people tell me how to live. Some of that resonates with us. But what Jesus is saying is if you don't understand this life in the light of the life to come, and you're only living this life, this life eventually will be lost. You may be able to avoid suffering and death for the Lord's sake by living the way you want to live, but eventually that life will come to an end. Life comes to an end. No matter how you live it, you can't avoid death entirely. And Jesus is saying if we live only with this life in mind, what will we have when this life is over? Jesus is saying by trying to preserve your life from that self-denial and cross-bearing, you may preserve this life for a time, but this life will end. And if you live only for this life, and this life is all you have, then in the end, by trying to save your life, you'll just end up losing it. Whoever would save his life, Jesus is saying, from self-denial and cross-bearing will ultimately lose both this life and any hope of eternal life. You may avoid suffering for my sake, but you won't avoid losing life in the end. And that's why Jesus is saying those who follow this path of self-denial and cross-bearing, it will seem like they are giving up their life. But actually by losing it in that sense, they will save it. Because what happens if you lose your earthly life for the sake of gaining eternal life for Jesus' sake and for the sake of his gospel? Well, whoever loses his earthly life for my sake and the gospels, Jesus said, will save his or her eternal life. 
There's a life beyond this life. That's the crucial perspective we need to have. There's an eternity beyond our history. It's much longer and much more important. And Jesus is saying if you don't understand that perspective on life, you'll never understand this call to follow me. You'll try to save yourself by avoiding my call, but that will only end in loss. But whatever you lose in following me, you will gain in the eternal life that I give. We need the proper perspective on true life. Because when we understand true life, it'll help us to truly value this life and the life to come. True life is what Jesus says we need to understand. Then he says we need to understand true value, the value to put on those things. That's what he's really getting after in verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The words soul and life in this passage are all the same word. Jesus is using the same concepts again And again, what would profit you? Say you live just for this life, and say by living for this life, you obtain everything that the world has. You've got it. You've got everything. What do you do when you die? I read a commentator this week who said, there are no pockets in a shroud. There's no cargo space in a coffin. What do you do when you die? Even if you've gained the whole world, you still don't have your life. I remember a number of years ago, it was popular to see bumper stickers that said, said, he who dies with the most toys wins. He who dies with the most toys wins. And then I started seeing another bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys still dies. Right? You can't take it with you. What does it profit you ultimately? How does it help you to gain everything this world has to offer you but lose your life? When life is gone, what do you do then? Right? The richest man in the world, I read this week, is estimated to be worth $242 billion with a B. And if if he he got sick with some terminal disease and someone says, I have a cure that will save your life, How much of that fortune do you think he'd be willing to spend to hold on to his life? And someone with all kinds of resources, they could probably keep themselves alive longer than most of us can keep ourselves alive. But on a long enough continuum, $242 billion does not buy you eternity. It does not buy you life forever. What could you give or what could you earn that could get life. That's what Jesus is saying here. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and that loses life? What can you give in ransom from your life? Can you pay for it? Can you buy more life? This point, of course, is no, you can't. No amount of money can save you from the eventuality that this life will be over. I think Jesus probably has in mind here the words of Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. 
You can put value on a lot of things in this world. Um, You can't put value on your life. You can't buy eternity at any price. It's of infinite value. It's beyond our grasp. And that's what Jesus is saying. To follow me is to gain that. The thing you can't gain at any other price. Something of true value. Because it's true life. And it is a calling to risk shame before the whole world. That's why I think we have to remember that aspect of the shameful publicity of death on a cross. There's no way to to do this and hide from the world. The world's going to see if we follow. And the world is going to mock us for following this path. Right? For those who think there is no life but this life, those who are living for another life seem to be on a fool's errand. Seem to be doing something really stupid. Um, if you have you know, unbelieving family or friends, sometimes that's how they react when you tell them you're going to church. You know, they may not mock you for it, but you can almost tell they don't understand what you're doing. I remember that distinctly when I was telling people that I was going to quit being an attorney to go to seminary to be a pastor. And most people said nice things. I don't remember anybody openly saying, you're crazy, you're out of your mind. Um, but you could see it on their faces. What are you doing? Oh, that's great. Great idea. <laughs> you know, who would, who would do something like that? Right? Um, It's hard for the world to understand why we do what we do, and there are going to be people that mock us for doing the things that we do. If you think this life is all there is, then if you're living for another kind of life, that seems ridiculous and stupid. There is going to be an aspect of shame associated with following Jesus. And Jesus is warning us that shame associated with following him can be a powerful disincentive for following One commentator said, one great hindrance to discipleship is fear of what the world will say. Hence come compromises and weak compliance on the part of disciples too timid to stand alone or too sensitive to face a sarcasm and a smile. Um, It can be a hard thing to to be made to feel ashamed for the sake of the Lord. Um... And we can show that we are ashamed of Jesus in many ways. Um, J.C. Ryle said, we show we're ashamed of Jesus when we're ashamed of letting people see that we believe and love the doctrines of Christ, that we desire to live according to the command of Christ, and that we wish to be reckoned among the people of Christ. Christ's doctrine, laws, and people were never popular, and they never will be. I think we really need to hear that. Especially you young people really need to hear that. There's really no way to make what we do here popular with the world. What we believe is not popular. How we try to live is not popular. The company we keep is not popular. Um, It never has been. It never will be. And shame on account of these things can be a powerful disincentive to following Jesus. That's why our Lord helps us so much here by saying, when the world mocks you, you need to consider the source. 
You need to consider who it is that's mocking you for following me. Who's mocking you for following me and the words that I've spoken? Who who is the one that's making you feel ashamed? It's this faithless and sinful generation. It's an unfaithful and sinful generation that will make you feel ashamed for following the Lord. I remember hearing my dad say something once that really stuck with me. He said, dishonorable treatment by dishonorable people is no dishonor. Dishonorable treatment by dishonorable people is no dishonor. And the the Lord is helping us by saying, you know, when a dishonorable generation of the faithless and sinful mock you for following Jesus and his word, consider the source. Because dishonorable treatment from dishonorable, a dishonorable generation is no dishonor. And what's the alternative? Say you court friendship with this faithless and accursed generation. Then what will you have at the end? If they're not ashamed of you, then Jesus says, I will be. And notice the difference of the shame. You can, be, you can have an, a faithless and sinful generation ashamed of you, or you can have the Son of Man who comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels ashamed of you. Jesus we, he says we need to understand true honor. Do we want to be honored temporarily by this world that's passing away or eternally by the one who's coming in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels? That's the glory we want. That's the honor we should seek. The things we do are not popular. They've never been popular. They never will be popular. And I think Calvin is right when he speaks to his church, which was suffering persecution at the hands of the world, when he talked about the nature of life in this world. He said, today we see the church oppressed by the arrogance of worldly men. One barks at us, another bites us. It is tor- the church is tormented, conspired against, constantly attacked by mad dogs and wild beasts. When we see such things, we should remember it has been that way since time immemorial. To be sure, God grants the church periods of truce and respite. Nevertheless, God has always willed that in this world, his church should be locked in battle. I think that can be particularly difficult in this country where it was founded on Christian principles and many of us have felt like it's been a much more open Christian society for a long time and some people in the panic of how bad things have gotten and how quickly they've gotten so bad have panicked by thinking, how do we get back to the the natural order of things? And then Calvin helpfully reminds us the natural order of things is spiritual warfare. God may grant us, by his grace, periods of respite and truce, but it's never meant the war has been over. It's always just been a ceasefire, granted by the grace of God. And when the battle is joined again, we shouldn't be surprised at it or act as if this is something happening that's outside of the normal. 
Calvin was right in the 1500s when he said, this has been true of the warfare of the church since time immemorial. Ryle was right centuries later when he said these things have never been popular, they never will be. If we're trying to keep our feet in both lanes, we're going to get hit by traffic in both directions. You have to make a choice. And it's the choice, Jesus said, between eternal honor by the one who comes in the glory of the Father and his holy angels, or it's the temporary honor of this world which is nothing but an unfaithful and sinful generation. That puts the choice really clearly and starkly before us and helps us to know which we should choose. To understand that, as one person put it, shame here and now is a small price to pay for acknowledgement and honor when Christ comes in glory. When the Belgic Confession was written, the church was a church of suffering, and when its author was eventually martyred for the faith. And when they reflected on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the 37th article, they, you can tell they consoled themselves with that thought that when the Lord comes, he will honor us no matter how we've suffered at the hands of the world here below. And here's how part of the Belgic Confession, Article 37, reflects on the Lord's coming. And hear how they hold, out, hold on to their heart, in their hearts the honor that's awaiting the people of God. So when the Lord comes in glory, then the saints will receive the fruits of their labor and of the trouble they have suffered. Their innocence will be openly recognized by all. The faithful and elect will be crowned with glory and honor. The Son of God will confess their names before God his Father and the holy and elect angels. All tears will be wiped from their eyes, and their cause at present condemned as heretical and evil by many judges and civil officers will be acknowledged as the cause of the Son of God. And as a gracious reward, the Lord will make them possess a glory such as the heart of man could never imagine. So we look forward to that great day with longing in order to enjoy fully the promises of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. What is the scorn of this world in comparison to that eternity of honor and glory? Um, That's why the Scottish pastor Alexander McLaren said, if we really want to be Christians in the world, we need to learn a wholesome contempt for the world's cackling. Isn't that a great line? We need to learn as Christians a wholesome contempt for the world's cackling and listen to the call of the Lord to understand true honor and to despise all the shaming of this faithless and and sinful generation and to think only of the honor and the glory of our King. And then really briefly, Jesus in one verse reminds them of of the power to come. So we're only on the third point now, I I grant you, and I can see the sweat breaking out on your foreheads. It's going to be very short because this is really going to be developed. But I think this is important to come to because what can all of this thought make us think is that there's no real, no real hope now. The hope is always coming in the future. And it can make us think that we kind of have to get into the bunker as Christians now and just wait for the glory to come from on high. It's a call to just kind of hold out until the cavalry comes. And that's not what Jesus is saying. The hope is not entirely future. The glory is not here yet. But what does Jesus comfort his disciples to know? that you'll see the power come soon. 
That's, that's the thrust of chapter 9, verse 1. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The glory comes at the end of the age. The glory has not come yet. But Jesus is saying there are some of you standing here who will see it come in power. Who will know the power within your lifetime. And the way Mark says this here, he's saying to us, this was something that Jesus not only said to the disciples in this crowd, it was something he was often saying to them. There are some of you standing here who will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it comes in power. And that's exactly what the disciples will see on the Mount of Transfiguration in the next text. They'll see the kingdom of God after it's come in power. And it will be something that will sustain them and us. This notion that the glory is not yet to come, but we've seen the power. And that with all the persecution and suffering that may await God's people in this world, there's also a power with us. A power that's with us and a power that's for us. A power that was manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ who is with us always to the very end of the age and who will never leave us or forsake us. None of this is meant to say it's only going to be trial and tragedy for the church in this world. It will be that. To follow Jesus is a call to deny yourself and to pick up your cross and to follow him. But we will do so supported and sustained by the power of the one we're following. That's our great hope in this world. And that's what the disciples will see in the next section. The power of the kingdom of God come in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that we follow after such a savior. And may all of us here deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow the Lord to life and honor and glory. Amen. Let's pray together.